You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. It's a blessing to be able to be here with you all this morning. I'm glad that I get to be here. If we have any guests, I see we have a few guests with us in the room today. I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad that you chose to come here to worship with us this morning. You're in for a treat. We're starting a new series today that we call Give. Uh, this is a bit of a tradition for us at Midtown. Every year around this year, we try to intentionally push back on the consumerism of our day, on the thought that the thing we should focus most on is how much we can acquire and we want to focus on the Lord and his generosity towards us more than anything else. So we generally take about three weeks. We have generally a give project that we'll do. You'll hear more about that at the end of our service together today, where we want to give to support what God is doing in and through our church, our family of churches, I should say, here at Midtown Fellowship. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew Chapter 1, we'll get it started at verse 1 today. We'll be working from verse 1 through verse 17. Now, I don't want to think too lowly of anyone in the room, but I'm going to assume that for most of us, the genealogies that we find in the Bible, the, the family trees that we find in the Bible, isn't where you spend most of your devotional time. I'll just say it that way. That's not generally when you're looking for that most encouraging scripture to encourage your heart, it's generally you're not going to the genealogy. So today, we're going to work our way through the genealogy that we find at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 17. I believe we'll be able to pull out some helpful categories that will help us know our God better. And hopefully, who knows, you may end up liking the genealogies in the Bible after today. We'll see how that goes. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'll begin by reading the first verse share a little bit about what we see there, and then we'll work our way through uh, this entire passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So these are the first words of the New Testament. I'll tell you a little bit about what was going on when the New Testament was written. God's people, even though they were, they were Hebrew, and many of them spoke Hebrew, the, the, the dominant language at that time was Greek. So they had to translate their old Hebrew Bible into Greek so that everyone was able to understand what was being written. That's important for this particular passage because the word that's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 for genealogy is the same Greek word that they use at that time for the word Genesis. So when he's saying this is the book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, those who were followers of God at that time, who primarily is who who, well, I should say those who were Jews and familiar with the Hebrew Bible is primarily who Matthew is writing to in this letter. He says the book of the genealogy, or as you might read it, the book of the, the Genesis or the book of the new beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's saying this is the new Genesis, and Jesus is ushering it in. In Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to get far, and you see that God is creating everything, and he's saying that it's good. It's good. It's good. He creates the, the heavens and the earth, and he says that it is good. A few chapters later, that doesn't go so well. In Genesis chapter 3, they turn into sin, and you see things throughout the, the narrative of the Bible begin to get more and more corrupt. 
you see more and more darkness begin to work its way into the story and into the narrative. Matthew is saying Jesus is the one that's bringing the new creation in. That in the first Genesis, things didn't go great. Honestly, didn't even end great as you continue throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But he's proclaiming Jesus. He says Jesus is the son of David. He's pointing to a promise that was made in the Samuels where David's lineage is is promised to be on the throne forever. That David will always have a son that's going to reign on the throne as king. So he's saying this, this this is the Genesis. This is the new beginning. This is the new creation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is bringing in this new creation. He's the son of David, which means he's the rightful heir of the throne. He's the son of Abraham. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to Abraham that his seed, his descendants, will bless all nations of the earth. He's starting off this genealogy by saying, hey, Jesus is the one we've been waiting on. All of the brokenness and pain that you felt because of sin and everything that sin has done in this world, he's the one that can save us from it and will undo it. And as he is undoing the curse of sin and all the suffering that came as a result of sin, he's going to be bringing in this new creation. We know that Paul picks up on this same theme as he says, for all of us who are in Christ, we are now new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. We have been made new. Those who follow Christ are a part of this new creation, this new beginning, the salvation that Christ is bringing. Now, before we read all this list of names in the genealogies, a couple things I want to make sure that you know. I'm going to be pulling out a few categories of names. Matthew is doing a lot in this genealogy, and I don't have time to get into half of it as far as exactly what he's doing. But I do want to pull out a few categories of the type of people that that Matthew is pointing out are in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' ancestors, so to speak. So let me read verses 2 through 17, and then we'll get into some of the different categories that we see of the people that Matthew is highlighting. Also, uh, I don't speak Greek or Hebrew. Sometimes when I read these Greek or Hebrew words, I just, I, I get a little bit parched. I have to clear my throat when I, some of these words come in that I don't quite know how to pronounce. Abraham, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Stay with me. We're working through the genealogy. And David was the father of Solomon by the, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father, of <coughs> the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation, deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of <coughs> the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father, I don't have any water, I don't have any water. The father of Abuad, Abuad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. 
So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. When you would read the ancient genealogies of a king, or one who somebody was saying should be king, you would often notice that they would highlight certain people, certain ancestors. They wouldn't include everyone in the genealogy, right? They would include the ones that they would think would let you know that this person is qualified to be king. They would highlight oftentimes the ones of great prestige, the ones of great power, the ones who are known for doing so many good things. That's not what Matthew does. Now, Matthew doesn't include everyone that was an ancestor of Jesus. He wouldn't have time to do all of that. He skips some generations. He highlights certain things about Jesus' lineage, but he is trying to show us what makes Jesus qualified to actually be the king that the Jews have been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds of years. This means every name that Matthew uses is very intentional because he's making a point. He's not just listing names at random. He's making a point about why Jesus is qualified to be the one that they have been waiting on to make all things right again. I want to give you a few categories of people that Matthew gives us in this genealogy. We'll spend a good bit of time specifically talking about a few women that are in the genealogy that actually shouldn't be in the genealogy. The reason I say shouldn't is because often at this time, women weren't in the genealogy for multiple reasons. One of which is that women weren't esteemed highly enough to be seen as, as one who would give some type of a claim to someone who was, who was, who was to make a play for the throne just because of the way women were looked at in ways that were horrible at this time. Also, thank you so much. You're so kind. So kind. I'm done pronouncing names, though. So kind. But also, just the way they did families was different back then, was different in that time and in that culture. Oftentimes, uh, when a child was born into a family, they saw the children as a part of the immediate family of, of the father. And oftentimes, they, the, the wife was seen as to have remained in her father's family. So just the way that the whole family dynamic was different. So oftentimes, because the children were seen as in the father's family, as far as immediate family goes, oftentimes the father was the one that was in uh, the genealogy. Oftentimes, also, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, oftentimes people were identified by who their father was. David, the son of Jesse, is oftentimes how he is referred to because that's the way, it's kind of was like their last name. Like who your father was was kind of like what, the way we see last name today. So for a few reasons, the fact that Matthew includes these women into this genealogy is extremely important. But I want to get to a few categories about why, I mean, about the type of people that were in Jesus's genealogy, genealogy that I want to point out. The first one is you have people who are both prestigious and you have common people. You have the prestigious and the common. You have kings, David, Solomon, Jeconiah, all these different kings that were there in the Old Testament, but you also have Ruth, who's a widow, didn't own any land of her own, had very little money of her own. She wasn't even a Jew originally, this list is supposed to show that this person is worthy and qualified for a royal lineage, but Ruth is here in the genealogy. Matthew's trying to do something very specific. Also, you have Rahab here. So you have the prestigious, you have the kings, you also have Rahab, who was a, a Canaanite, who was in Jericho. She was a sex worker. She made money by having sex with people. She didn't have prominence. She didn't have a lot of prestige. She was likely looked down on. Matthew includes her in the genealogy. We'll get into why a little bit later. But we also not only have the prestigious and the common, but we also have those known for sin and those known for righteousness here. 
in the genealogy. I just mentioned Rahab. She was a sex worker. She made money by having sex with men. You also have Tamar. Now, this is a different Tamar. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, this is a different Tamar. Tamar actually tricked her father-in-law, who was Judah, into sleeping with her so that she could have his child. There's one chapter about her and her life, and that's the primary thing that we know about her. Matthew thinks it's important to include her in the genealogy of Jesus. You have those who are known for sin, and you also have those known for their righteousness here in the genealogy. You have Abraham, who's the father of faith. You have Josiah, who was one of the great kings in the Old Testament, known for his faith, known for his righteousness. There's a third category of people here. You have the oppressed and the privileged as well here. You have Bathsheba in the genealogy known as, obviously we talked about Bathsheba a little bit earlier, the wife of Uriah. She's a victim of oppression. She was summoned by the king to come and sleep with him. And then the king had her husband murdered You also have Joseph and Mary, lest we forget all Jews at the time that the New Testament was written were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. You also have Ruth and Rahab, who would be Gentile women who would have been looked down on and marginalized, oftentimes amongst Israelites. You also have David, the one who summoned Bathsheba. You also have Rehoboam, you have Solomon, you have so many kings who would have enjoyed much privilege and a system that was set up to allow them to to succeed and for their families to succeed. You have all these different types of people in this genealogy, and Matthew sees it important to point all of them out. Matthew is showing us that Jesus comes from a diverse group of people, and he comes for a diverse group of people. He's showing us that, that Jesus comes from the, both the prestigious and the common, those known for sin and known for righteousness, those who are oppressed and those who are privileged. And he's showing us that Jesus also comes for the prestigious and the common, those known for sin and those known for righteousness, those who have been oppressed and those who are privileged. He comes from such a diverse lineage, and he comes for a diverse lineage as well. Matthew is saying that this diversity that we see in this genealogy is who Jesus is after. This is who Jesus used to bring salvation, and this is who Jesus will continue to use in this new creation, this new work that Jesus is doing to bring salvation as well. One of the first points I want to point out to us is that God uses, we see this in the genealogy, God uses all types of people for his purposes. He uses all types of people for his purposes. We see this in the genealogy. It doesn't matter your status. He wants to use you. The question I want to ask us today is, do you expect God to use you? Do you have this expectation? We have evidence right here in the genealogy that he'll use whoever. He'll use so many different types of people, men, women, high class, lower class, whatever the occupation, whatever the level of success, whatever the level of prestige. Do you think God wants to use you or do you just think he wants to use other people? Or do you think that other people meet the qualifications, but you don't? I think most Christians would come to an understanding and agree that, yes, God wants to use his people. But oftentimes, we, we, even though we understand that, our next thought is, but he, he probably uses people not like me the most, though, right? He probably uses those other people, those, those who, who have had a little bit more success than me. Right? I'm, I haven't gotten to where I expected to be in life at this point, so I really don't know if God wants to use me now. Maybe later when I have a few more accomplishments, I get a little bit more done, when I'm a little bit more successful. 
I say this all the time. People, members of our church who are part of life groups, I believe many of us would be much more consistent in our participation in our life groups if we expected God to use us. If every Tuesday night or Thursday night or Wednesday night or whenever you guys meet, if you got together, if every, every week you expected God to use you in that meeting, I think it would be a little bit easier for you to go. I think you'd be a little bit more engaged. I think you'd probably pray a little bit more before you got there. I think you probably wouldn't let the fear of man choke you out from saying things to people that you know God wants you to say to people. If we had an expectation for God to use us, why don't you expect God to use you? What are your disqualifiers? What do you believe disqualifies you? What do you believe disqualifies you? Is it maybe your socioeconomic status? You think maybe you haven't been successful enough, you haven't achieved enough maybe in your career, and your vocation as you expect it to. I want to proclaim the good news of the new beginning in Jesus Christ today who was the son of David, yes, but he was also the son of Ruth. He was also the son of Ruth who didn't have money, who didn't have land of her own. She was in need of help from others to help her, to support her so she would be able to provide for herself. Yes, he's the God of David and Solomon, but also he comes from Ruth. She was married, but her husband passed away, didn't leave any money or land to her. And God used her to bring salvation to the world. God doesn't decide whether or not he will use us based on how successful and accomplished and esteemed we are, but rather we decide that we believe that God will use us based on how successful and accomplished and esteemed he is. What are your disqualifiers? It is, is it because of all the wrong you've done? Do you feel like you're the person in here that needs to be ministered to? You, you need people to, to help you. You're not the one that needs to be serving and ministering to other people. That you come here that God might use other people to help you. Maybe you think you've messed up too much. Maybe you think you're too dirty, too sinful. You're too far gone. That There's no way with all the stuff that you have done that God can see all of that and still use you. If that's you today, I want to encourage you today with Jesus Christ, whom God is using to bring the new beginning, the son of Rahab. The son of Tamar. Rahab made a living using her body for sexual sin, and God ends up using her womb to bring salvation to the world. Think about that. He specializes in using what has been marred and corrupted by sin and turning it to use it for his glorious purposes. This is what Jesus came to do, that he comes to a world broken and marred by sin, so corrupt, saves a people, now uses them to bring new life to his world. For you to believe that your sin is too big for God to use you is for you to believe that your sin is bigger than your God. I want to encourage us today that God's forgiveness is greater than your guilt. God's mercy is greater than your sin. God's justification is greater than your condemnation. God's freedom is greater than your bondage to sin. And God's purification is greater than any sin stain that you've ever had. Your sin isn't a disqualifier for God to use you. Your sin sets the stage for God to do what he does to bring redemption, to bring forgiveness, to bring new life, for sin has corrupted. I love what Romans 5 verse 20 says. It says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That anywhere that there is sin, God has more grace than you have sin. He has more forgiveness than you have sin. He has more power to forgive than your sin has power to make you guilty. This is who he is. This is who our God is. 
But there's another side to this coin that I want to make sure I clarify about. There are some who believe because of all the wrong things that they've done that maybe God doesn't want to use them. But then there are a few people on the other side of the spectrum that feel like, well, I don't have a testimony where I was wilding out and I was killing people and I was doing all this stuff. So I don't know if God can use my testimony, right? My testimony is kind of boring. I grew up in the church. For the most part, followed him since I was younger. And many people don't believe, well, if I don't have one of these testimonies that really stirs people up, then maybe God can't use me in the same way that he's used someone else whose testimony maybe is more eye-opening or more jarring than mine is. But that's still doubting the power of God. That in your life, God, you're telling me since you were young, God displayed the power to keep you from so many different types of sin? This reveals the very power of God that from a very young age, he was like, no, I'm not going to let you go here. I'm not going to let you go here. I'm going to keep you right where I need you to be. This is a testament to the glory and the power of God that he is able to keep us. I pray my boys and my, and my daughter have a boring testimony. I want their testimony to be super boring. It's like, I don't know. I was just following Jesus. You know what I mean? I've been trying to get to know him. I hope they have the most boring testimony in this room. King in the Bible named Josiah. He's one of the best kings. I really, I, I love studying his story. I can't find anything in the Bible that says that he, did, that he did wrong. I love it. And God used him in powerful ways to rid his people of so much idolatry and so much sin. And to ultimately bring salvation to his people. You're not disqualified by your level of sinfulness or your level of righteousness that you believe yourself to have. Everyone is a sinner in need of God's grace and forgiveness and redemption. What are your disqualifiers? Maybe it's because of the way that you've been treated. We often internalize things that people do to us, things that people say to us. I know that there are people in this room right now that you've been told that you're useless that you're not good for anything, that you're just a problem. And maybe you internalize that to the point that you feel like that's who you are, so you don't really feel like God can use you. Maybe people have said incredibly mean things. Maybe you've been bullied in a variety of ways, and you just assume now that you are useless, that you're not valuable, that you're, you're not worth the effort or the energy. And if that's you, I just want to lovingly rebuke you real quick. God would love to redeem every single day of your life as he uses you for his purposes. Someone has sinned against you in some way and brought much darkness and pain and harm and evil into your life. Maybe even used you for their own personal gain or for their own good or for their own pleasure. And now God wants to turn that around and use you for his purposes and for his good to bring life and joy and light into the world. That some might have desired to use you for evil purposes. And God says, I can use your life to bring salvation in this world. Nothing disqualifies you. You aren't disqualified by how others have treated you. Because the king of the new beginning has treated you better than anything that you could ever deserve. And you are his. The enemy will use so many different lies to get us to think we're disqualified from being used by God. But he used people that meet your disqualifiers to bring Jesus into the world. Things that you would say would disqualify you, he used people that would have been disqualified by your standards to actually bring the Savior into the world. This is what Matthew is pointing out to us. 
that people who would be disqualified by the way we disqualify ourselves, God says, I am going to use them in an incredible way for my purposes. And he's still using broken people to do that today. So we know that God, that Jesus came from all different types of people, that God used all different types of people for his purposes. But I also want to point out that Jesus came not just from all different types of people. He came for all different types of people. We need to think about the implications of that for a little bit. He came for all different types of people. That he just does, he doesn't just want to use you for his purposes. He wants to be with you and make you his. It's not just that he uses a variety of different types of people. He comes for a variety of different types of people, meaning he wants you. He's not coming to you just so that you can do things for him. He can do anything he wants to do. He's God. He doesn't need you to accomplish his purpose. He can do whatever he wants to do. The fact that he saved you, it's not that he saw you and said, like, oh, they could be useful for my kingdom. Let me go in and bring them in. He's like, no, I want this person. I want him. I want her to be mine because I want them, because I desire them. That your station your, your, your place in life, your lot in life doesn't mean that God desires anyone else more or less than you. He desires you as he desires everyone. If you come from poverty, if you come from riches, God wants you and comes for you. No matter where you are, men, women, no matter what your background is. As I said earlier, he came from people of royal descent and he came from common people, and he comes for people of royal descent and common people as well. This is the thing that's crazy about the genealogy. Why would Matthew include these people in the genealogy? He's trying to make the point that Jesus is qualified to be king. He's making the point that the reason that Jesus is qualified to be king is because he's not just for those who are highly acclaimed, but he comes for everyone because he comes from everyone. That he desires to welcome everyone in. Matthew is going against the grain. He's saying the thing that most people would believe would make him ready or qualified to be king is not the thing that I'm saying makes him qualified to be king. It's not just that he comes from a royal lineage, but because I know he can relate to everyone because he comes from a group that is diverse like everyone. He's saying this king, he's qualified because he comes from the prestigious. He comes from common people. When Hannah and I were dating, my wife and I were dating, I knew I was called to be pastor at the time. One of the questions that I was thinking about was, would our union be an aid to the ministry that God has called me to? And that's a good question. It's a really good question. But the reason that I asked that question was because I wanted her. Does that make sense? I asked the question about would she be an aid to the ministry that God called me to because I first just wanted to be with her. And I believe it's the same with God. That he calls us to work with him primarily because he wants us to be with him. And this is what he's doing. This is his work. Seeking and saving the lost, this is the very work of God. And so when God calls us, he is offering us the opportunity to work with him because he desires for us to be with him. Listen, we're going to work with him for however many years you have left in this this world. He wants you to work with him for what he's doing. And then you're going to go and be with him forever, for all eternity. And he's not using you for anything. 
You're already with him for all eternity. There's no one who needs to be saved anymore. Everyone who is with him is with him, and he just wants us to be with him. I wonder if your understanding of the Christian life is more about you serving God than you being with God. Is it more about you working for him or enjoying life with him? Which do you most understand Jesus to have come to the earth for? Which do you understand him to have primarily saved you for? Because he wants you to do stuff for him or because he just wants you? Or because he just desires to be with you? God desires for his people to be with him forever. I don't know what you believe is disqualifying you from God wanting you today. But there was nothing you could ever do to earn his desire for you in the first place. And so your actions don't cause him to desire you any less. Because your actions aren't what made him desire you in the first place. My children aren't able to do anything to make me stop loving them. There's nothing that they can do. Literally, no matter what they do, I desire them and I love them because they are mine. My children can't earn my desire for them. I just love them and want to be with them and want them to be with me. I want to encourage us today that God didn't just use Rahab, but he brought her into the fold. That she was welcomed. He welcomed her into his people, even though she was a Gentile. Again, she was a sex worker. She was not extremely prestigious. She was known for her sin, known for her unrighteousness. She would have been looked down on by many, but God looked at her and wanted her just as much as he wanted David, just as much as he wanted Josiah, just as much as he wanted Abraham, he wanted Rahab. Because our sin is not a disqualifier for God desiring us. Your sin does not make God desire you less. The type of sin that you have committed doesn't make God desire you less. The fact that you've committed that same sin over and over again that you've been praying about for 10 years does not make God desire you less. He's not looking at you side-eyed because of that one sin that stays on your mind. He, it doesn't cause him to hesitate in his pursuit of you because, this, because of this sin that currently has come to your mind that you think about that you continue to practice. He still desires you just as much. Or maybe you feel like because of the type of sin that you committed that God doesn't desire you as much. That he just tolerates you, right, because that's what God is supposed to do. He has to accept you, but he doesn't really like you. He just has to tolerate you. It's how we often feel. No, no, no. God desires his people. He wants us. He came for us. If you're you're his, there's no sin that would make him disown you, that could make him abandon you, want to leave you, make him hesitate in his love for you. No, no, he wants you. Not some made-up version of you that's a little bit more righteous than you currently are. Not some future version of you where you have all your stuff together, you're not making as many mistakes. Not some more morally upright version of you. Not the you you pretend to be so others won't look down on you. No, he wants you. You. He wants you. What are your disqualifiers for feeling like God wants you? He wants the rich. He wants the poor. He wants the prestigious. He wants the common. He wants those known for their faith and righteousness. He wants those known for their sin. And let me say this as well. He wants the oppressed and the privileged. He wants the oppressed and the privileged. The marginalized and the prestigious. God sees all of us as worthwhile to him. We're not worthless to him. We're not discardable to him. We all have value to him. All have worth to him. So let me say this. The fact that you have been mistreated by others does not mean that God doesn't 
desire you. So many have, who have suffered abuse, and I want to be real clear what I'm talking about. I'm talking about abuse specifically maybe from a person in a person-person interaction or from a system that is set up that you might not be able to succeed. No matter what the harm or abuse that has been done, we oftentimes internalize it to believe that now maybe I am worthless because people treat me like I'm worthless. Maybe I don't have value because people have treated me like I'm not valuable, and we internalize it and we believe it. And so we believe, as I said earlier, that God probably just tolerates us. I mean, he probably doesn't really like me that much. He just accepts me because he has to. And I want to encourage us that he stops at nothing. If you are his today, he stops at nothing to make you his. He stop at nothing, even death itself, to make you his. No matter how others have treated you, you have a rock-solid truth that you have value to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, and he desires you. He went to the cross. He was willing to harm himself. Oftentimes, part of why we, we have these views of ourselves that we're unvaluable is because people were willing to harm us to try to make themselves either feel better about themselves or make themselves find some type of pleasure or whatever it is. But Jesus comes in and orchestrates his own crucifixion and harms himself that he might bless you and make you his. That as others have harmed us, he harmed himself that we might be his. I want to proclaim to you today Jesus Christ, the son of Rahab and Ruth, who were Gentiles and not Jews. I want to proclaim to us today these women who stand as proof that Jesus comes from a group of ethnically diverse people, and he comes for a group of ethnically diverse people. Those of us in the room who are black, those of us who are white, other ethnicities and races that we have in the room, your race, your ethnicity, your heritage does not disqualify you from the pursuit and love of our God. And I have to say that because we live in a world oftentimes where darker skin is looked down on. And I know that many of my brothers and sisters of darker skin feel that and feel less worthwhile and feel like we have less Value. I want to say very clearly, God wants you. He is the God of Ruth. He is the God of Rahab and cares for and desires all people. He wants you. And there's another side of the story that I think is important for me to say as well. There's a, a woman uh, that once came up to me and said that this is a, a, a white woman who's been around our church and said, she didn't feel comfortable being a part of our church. And she listed to me two reasons, one of which was with how many African-Americans we have in our church, her being white. And I believe, I don't know if she would say this, but I believe when she looked at herself, she saw an oppressor when she looked at herself. And she was having a lot of trouble embracing and accepting forgiveness because of that and because of racist things that she had done in the past. And you could see the shame physically manifesting itself on her as she was having a conversation with me and another member of our church. You could see she was physically trembling, struggling, and wanting to be able to embrace forgiveness, but not quite knowing how. And I wanted to say to you, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. You're not some type of second-class member here? You're not some type of second-class Christian here? And I say that because I've talked to a lot of my white brothers and sisters in the faith that when they look at the mirror, honestly, they see an oppressor and they carry this vague guilt or this vague condemnation over themselves and not really knowing what to do. And so when I say I proclaim the God who came from Rahab, 
the God who came from Ruth. What I'm saying is regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your race, God desires you right as you are. And there's nothing about your lineage that causes him to desire you less. I want to proclaim to you today Jesus son of David, son of Solomon, who were privileged and wealthy. There are men who benefited from the system that was set up for them, and God came from people of power and privilege as well. Can I preach a scandalous gospel to you today? That when we go to heaven and we're sitting at the table, there's going to be people guilty of everything. There's going to be abusers at the table. There's going to be oppressors at the table. There's going to be the oppressed at the table. There's going to be people who have been oppressed and have been, played a role in oppressing others at the table. The scandalous gospel is he wants everybody. Regardless of your sin, regardless of what you've done, regardless of people, what people have done to you, regardless of what people before you have done that look like you or don't look like you, regardless of how you have been treated, the table is going to be multicolored. There's going to be people from all walks of life, people known for their faith and righteousness, people known for their sin. There's going to be the prestigious. There's going to be the common people. There's going to be the rich. There's going to be the poor. Everyone is going to be at the table. This is the gospel of Jesus, and here's why everyone's going to be at the table. Because when you get to the cross, it puts all of us on the same playing field. Everybody's a sinner in need of grace. Everybody. I don't care about your family. I don't care where you come from. I don't care how much money you have, how much money you don't have. I don't care what your skin color is. Everybody comes to the cross needing forgiveness. And everybody who places faith in the death and resurrection of our God finds forgiveness in him and is going to be at the table with our God in heaven when we go to be with him. Because he comes from a diverse group. He comes for a diverse group. He comes from an unlikely lineage. And when you get to heaven and be with him, when you see him, you're going to see an unlikely group of people sitting together as well. You're going to see people who have no other reason to be at a table together except for the fact that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago as a baby to save sinners and save the lost. This is who we worship. Listen, one of my favorite things about our church is that on a Sunday after Sunday basis, we get to see a little picture of what heaven's going to be like. Every Sunday as we approach the communion table, you see people from different backgrounds. You see people from different ethnic groups going through the table. You see people with different levels of success from a career standpoint, different levels of prestige in society. You see the rich. You see the poor going to the table. Oftentimes you see black Christians going to the table and white Christians going to the table. It's a beautiful picture of what we see in this genealogy. Jesus Christ who brings in the new creation, the new genesis, where he comes and deals with the problem of sin for all of us, that we all might come to know him. And in just a few moments, we're going to approach the table together as a family. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray for us. If you're unfamiliar with how we do communion here, we'll have the bread that's in the back that's been broken. We'll also have the juice back there. You can just walk back there on your own time and dip the bread into the juice. We do it in remembrance of him. I want us to remember today that the God who came and died for us comes from such a, a diverse, beautiful group of people and comes for a diverse, group, beautiful group of people, which means he can and desires to use you, and it means he desires to be with you as well. I'll pray for us, and then I'll open up the communion table. Father, we're grateful today. We're grateful that you use this, this, this group, this unlikely group of people to bring salvation into the world. And Father, we pray that that will be true of our church as well. 
that we would be a group of people that when people look at us and say, I don't know why this such a diverse group of people would even come together, would even work together. But Father, it's because you desire to be with us. You desire to make us your own and you desire to use us. Will you help us bear that in mind as we approach the table together today? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.